from the book of Mark, chapter 4, verses 33 through 41. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Word of the Lord. Thank you, Jared. This summer we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the memory and the record, the eyewitness account from Peter, by tradition, um, and he's telling us in a very vivid and concise way what he saw, what he remembers from his time with Jesus. Starting with Jesus' baptism and his temptation, his beginning as a teacher where he taught with authority, where he healed, where he drove out demons. We've seen him collect together 12 disciples to form the core of this new community. And through a series of parables, Jesus begins to teach the disciples and the world about this new kingdom of God that's arising, that he is inaugurating. As we see in our passage, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So parables were the distinctive method that Jesus sought to teach. Little seeds, little stories that could be placed in the minds of his listeners. They didn't need to write anything down. They didn't need to record anything. They could remember the stories, but as they dwelled on them, as they thought about them, as they impact the meaning, their teaching would blossom. It is how Jesus taught illiterate people. But then something changes. He's been talking about the kingdom, you know, comparing it to a light on a stand that illuminates, comparing it to the crop that a, father, that a farmer brings in after sowing. But now he moves on, talking less about the kingdom and now about the king himself, who has this incredible authority who can rebuke the wind and say to the waves, quiet, be still, who has authority over nature. This is the beginning of Jesus truly revealing who he is, a new kind of king, a new kind of authority, a new kind of power. So let's have a look at it. Look at verse 35, uh, 25. That day when the evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. It was Jesus' practice 
to teach around the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds were so large that he would sit in a boat and teach while the crowd came to the shore. And so what he's saying here is, let's go to the other side of Galilee. But also something else is going to happen here. You know, the Sea of Galilee was the home turf of the, many of the disciples. They were fishermen. The boats belonged to them. These were their fishing grounds. They were f familiar with the Sea of Galilee. This is um, their workplace. But Jesus is going to take them on a journey of a different kind. It's almost like when he says, let us go over to the other side, he's saying, let us enter the twilight zone. Let's take the red pill. Let's see how deep the rabbit hole goes. He is going to show them something that is completely unexpected. What it's going to do is quiet a storm. Now, before we look at the details of the story, before we consider this passage, for some people, as soon as you get to a part of the Bible like this, a grand miracle, people just stop reading, stop taking it seriously. After all, we all know that miracles can occur or don't occur. Many people believe that. Sure, there are human healers, too. Sure, there are people who do extraordinary and miraculous-seeming things, but people are strange. Odd things happen in the world. But to calm a storm, this is a different scale. And at this point, some people say, well, the Bible is just ridiculous. It's like a fairy story, like a child story. We don't have to take it seriously. I don't have to think about this anymore because clearly something is wrong. It's not talking about any kind of truth that I know or understand. And that's got a good, <clears throat> that's got a good history and reputation. You know, the philosopher David Hume famously wrote a book on uh, miracles and why we don't need to believe in them. He said they are violations of natural law, the way things, things are observed to be. And therefore, just because somebody say they've seen a violation or they've seen some miracle, we can, we can safely ignore them because of all the other evidence on the other side. After all, if we went to a court and we were on the jury and a robber said, you know, right before the police showed up, this evil spirit popped into my room and he put the money under my bed, we would not believe him. That is not a good explanation for why the money is under his bed. The natural explanation, that he's a robber, is much more convincing, much more in accord with the way the world works. And that's Hume's point. There is so much evidence for the natural way of things, the natural laws of physics, that there is no need ever to invoke the supernatural. No need to acknowledge or believe in miracles. So are Christians just foolish, stupid, credulous, willing to believe things that smart, educated people don't believe? Well, something has changed since the age of Hume. When Hume was alive, and in fact the early days of the attempt to make sense out of the world, it was believed that we lived in this stable, eternal universe. No beginning, 
no end. Like a clock, it just ran smoothly according to the laws of physics. You didn't need to invoke God or anything mysterious. It just was, and we are living in it, and that's all there is. But that's changed. I'm sure many of you know about this. But if you look at the natural universe closely, and people have, it's not static. Everything in our universe, every star, every galaxy, appears to be moving away from us. It's like we're in the middle of this big explosion. And indeed, if you use the natural laws of the universe, the laws of physics, and you extrapolate backwards from where we are, then you can see that everything that there is in the universe was once at this singularity. Everything that there is once was in this tiny place. The natural laws of the universe point to a beginning for the universe, what is sometimes referred to as the Big Bang. Now remember, this is not a biblical argument. This is not a Christian argument. This is what the natural laws lead you to believe. So what does that mean? That everything in the natural universe sprang into existence. Time, space, matter, energy, the laws of physics, everything. It means that there was something that was not part of the natural universe that caused it. Something prior. Something that gave the natural universe its beginning. Well, what do you call things that are not in the natural universe? They are pre-natural. They are supernatural. They are something in addition to the natural universe. And so the very natural laws that people like Hume point to also point to the fact that the natural universe must have had some kind of supernatural cause, that is, something outside itself. Now, as I say, this is not a Christian argument. This doesn't come to us from the Bible. But I think to most Christians, this looks a lot like God creation, creating everything. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Doesn't that look like a supernatural cause for the Big Bang? My point is, the claims about the laws of physics, about what is natural and what is not, are okay about natural events in our universe, but that's not what Christianity and the Bible are claiming. Miracles are indeed unnecessary to explain natural events. But Mark here is not talking about a natural event. He's talking about the supernatural reality of Jesus. The claim of the Bible, the claim of Christianity, that Jesus is more than just another naturally born man. His origins are outside of the natural world. He is also the Son of God, eternally part of the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so he has supernatural divine power from outside the natural world. 
If you go to the New Testament, the writer of the book of Hebrews puts it this way. God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Notice that one. God created the universe through Jesus. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The natural world, every one of us, was created through Jesus. More than that, we're not just a clockwork machine running after being created. Every moment of our lives, every breath that we take, every second, every hour, every day, every human lifetime is sustained moment to moment by Jesus, by his power. That's the kind of power he has. Or Paul, writing to the Colossian church, says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is an extraordinary claim of power. Jesus is not just one person or one object amongst other objects in the universe. Jesus came from outside. In fact, Jesus is the creator of all things. And his power is what allows things to continue to exist. So when he speaks to nature, when he speaks to this storm, this isn't a fight. It's not Jesus fighting the powers of nature. Jesus is the source of the power of nature. He is just switching that storm off. There's no conflict. There's no battle. Jesus is the source of all power, and therefore his power is unlimited. There's a second element, though, to this that I'd just like to quickly draw your attention to. Um, I'm a literature major, so this is maybe more powerful in my mind than yours. But I think this is interesting. You know, Jesus was a notorious storyteller. Maybe this is just another one of his stories. Maybe the disciples picked this one up from him and they're just are repeating it. But just look at the details of this story. Verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind, remember, he's on the Sea of Galilee, he was teaching on the shore, and now he's taking the disciples out into the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. What are those other boats? They're only mentioned here. They play no part in the story. They're never mentioned again. There's no sense of what their reaction was to what happened how they fared in the storm, what they thought about the calm. The details about those boats are completely extraneous to the story, completely irrelevant and unnecessary. Yet here they are. Or verse 37 and 38. A furious squall came up, 
and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Why does it matter that Jesus was asleep in the stern on a cushion? It plays no part in the story. It's not referred to again. It is a detail, but it has no relevance to the main thrust of the story. Well, what's my point? If this was just another story, another of Jesus' parables, why would he include, why would the disciples include these extraneous details? They are completely unnecessary, irrelevant, and yet they're in the story. Well, you might say, and, and people do, if you're trying to convince others that a story is true, you embellish it. You add details to make it more authentic and realistic. After all, that is what novels and storytelling is all about. But perhaps what you don't realize is that is a relatively new thing. The past few centuries of human literature is when these techniques of realism were adopted, especially in novels. But that was not literature in the past. If you look at human literature, if you look at fairy tales, if you look at plays, orations, poetic stories, the Greek and the Roman epics, in fact, any literature before the past two or three centuries, what you get is what you get. Everything is significant, like Jesus' parables. You only put in the story what is relevant, what has significance, what will be important. You don't add extraneous details. That is a modern invention. If you want to claim that this is just a story, you have to explain the fact that the techniques in this story, if it is a story, didn't exist from a, for a millennium and a half until modern times that somehow back then they used techniques, methods that hadn't even been thought of, that were not part of literature. And there's a lot of ancient literature. What is the best explanation of this story? I would suggest to you that the best explanation is that it truly is an eyewitness account. The disciples noticed that when they set out, there were other boats around them. The disciples remember the threat of being swamped. The disciples remember Jesus asleep on a cushion at the stern of the boat. They weren't inventions. They didn't know how to do that. They were memories. They were the eyewitness account of what happened. You can challenge it. But to do so ignores the history of writing in our world. And the point is, and this is the point of the Bible, I think, the point of the Bible is to confront you and me with the reality of God. God is real. The Bible is saturated with that truth from beginning to end. And you can't just dismiss that claim. You certainly can't rationally dismiss that claim, 
and you can't honestly dismiss eyewitness accounts. You have to provide some other explanation, and people have tried. We are being confronted here with the real challenge of the reality of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. What kind of person can do that? Notice there's no fuss there. There's no conjuring up of mystical forces, no incantations or crystals, no wands or staffs of power. There is no fight here. There's no struggle at all. Just simple, quiet words. Be quiet. Be still. That is because, as we've seen, Jesus is not another power amongst the powers of the world. He is the underlying power that created everything that is and sustains it from moment to moment. When he speaks, his words have power because they are the source. He doesn't struggle because he can just switch off. And that's true of every one of our lives. And the disciples recognize that. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You know, the point of Jesus taking them out there into a place that they were familiar with, they were comfortable with, is to change their notions about who he is. He's not just this teacher, this kind of man on the shore. He is expanding the definition, the reality, their understanding of who he really is. He is confronting them with a truth. And it's terrifying. You know, throughout history, people have tried to come to terms with Jesus. And they're happy for him to be a teacher, to be some kind of moral example or a spiritual leader. But it is stories like this that challenge the world. C.S. Lewis, as usual, puts it beautifully in Mere Christianity. He's responding to people who want Jesus to be a moral teacher, and he says this. I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. He's talking about Jesus. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as the great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. End quote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a boiled egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Puts it so beautifully. Jesus is a challenge 
And the challenge is, who is this man? Who do you believe he is? Who did the disciples believe that he is? Verse 41. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They were terrified. They were afraid. By the way, if you read through the Bible, more than 80 times when people encounter God, when people come to true faith with the reality of God, the result is fear. Fear of the Lord. In fact, the Bible says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? Why were they afraid? Why is it healthy to be afraid? After all, this is Jesus meek and mild. Shouldn't we be in love with him? Isn't he like a sweet little lamb? What of all this fear and terror? Well, let, let me give you an illustration, a little story that uh, help, helps me at least think about it. It happened that I found myself in Tennessee with some friends in this little town where there was nothing to do, and we were trying to entertain ourselves. And the only cool thing about the town was a dam. There was this huge dam right next door to it. And so, of course, being guys, we had to go and see it. And it was in this lovely little wooden gorge, not so lovely, very deep. And the dam was there, uh, beautiful in the moonlight. And at the base was this huge jet of water, an outlet. And it just formed this beautiful roaring curve in the moonlight. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. And we sat on the side just looking at it. But, you know, we're guys. You have to go and get close to that jet. And we dared each other until we made our way down the slope, slipping and sliding from tree to tree, until we got closer. And as we got closer, the noise, and it wasn't just a noise. It was more of a vibration. It was so loud. You felt it rather than heard it. The noise started to dominate, this vibration. The trees were shaking, and the... The mist from the water was dripping from the trees, and the ground was shaking. And when we got close, there was a huge concrete pier that supported the pipe, and the concrete was shaking. It was amazing. So we dared each other to go along the pier until we're standing under this pipe. And the pipe is like 15 or 20 feet wide. It's this just jet of pure power. Just putting your hand up close to it, the mist would sting your fingers. God knows what would happen if you put your hand into it. And there we were, giddy, laughing and grinning. We couldn't hear each other or speak or anything. Giddy with the delight and power and terror of where we were. Because a single slip on this slippery, vibrating concrete, and we would be gone. The power overwhelmed us, filled our imaginations, filled our thoughts, you couldn't think of a single thing without reference to that power. It completely dominated that environment, and we were in awe. We were fearful. We were terrified and happy and stupid. It reminds me of a quote from The Hobbit. It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. When you are around power... You better pay attention. You better, first of all, pay attention to that power and its significance. It is dangerous. It is wonderful. 
It is awesome, but it is also a threat to your life. You are in the presence of that which can unmake you, can destroy you. And I think that's the idea that we are confronted with here. What it means to live, to exist in the fear of the Lord. Paul says, in him, we live and move and have our being. God, Jesus, is the foundation of our lives. And not to be aware of that terrible reality. And it is terrible. We are as fragile as gossamer. Every moment of our lives depends on God who loves us. If we try to live without reference to that, if we try to evade Jesus, if we try to make plans or a life without him, it is not going to work. You know, I learned uh, a long time ago, I used to be in the habit of starting the day with a cup of coffee and the New York Times. Um, because I had this idea that I'm not really woken up and I should be awake before I pray or do anything with God, so I'll use the New York Times to wake up with a good cup of coffee and then I'll pay attention to God. And of course, if you do that, you're filled with the troubles of the world. And the world is going increasingly mad, I think you've noticed. That is not a good foundation for a happy day, a happy life. It is reckless in the extreme to live without reference to God. That's how every day should begin, because he is the foundation. And nothing in your life will make sense unless you include God in your calculations. Unless you bring to him the troubles and the opportunities of the day. A wise man once said, stop doing the things that you know are bad for you. Start doing the things that you know are good for you. Very straightforward, easy revise. If you don't start your day with God, it's not going to be a great day. Because something else other than him is going to dominate. Dominate your mind, your imagination, your plans. Is it any wonder that we have problems when we try to live without God? Remember, even the wind and the waves obey him. It is his power that allows you to exist. And therefore, he needs to be part of everything that you think and do. It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Well, you have a live God. You have the creator of the universe, the creator of you and everything that you know, and he is right here. In him, we live and breathe and have a being. It's reckless not to include him and make him the foundational truth of your life. It just will not work. And therefore, you have to answer for yourself this question. Who is he? Do you believe these stories about him? Are you ready to worship him? Is he the foundation of your life? When you wake up tomorrow morning, what are you going to start your day with? The news of this troubled world or the good news of Jesus Christ? 
we have the choice. You and I are confronted with the choice right now. And the choice is to recognize that God loves you. Yes, he's terrifying. Yes, he's fearful. But he loves you. And he loves me. And he seeks our best. If he has this power, and that power is on our side, what is impossible for us? What barrier in our life cannot be removed? How much can you change if you start following him? Who is he? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into our world to save us. He came into our world to set us free and to bring us home. And when you know and believe that truth, everything else, by comparison, is irrelevant. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, even the wind and the waves obey you because you are the source of all things. You are our source. We thank you, Lord, that you have come as a savior to us, that you offer yourself freely to us, that you include us, Lord, in your plan and your story. You make us family. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join